0: This episode is presented by Naoki and Food Future Co.
1: Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and executive director of HRN, Katie Mosman-Wadler. A few weeks ago, we presented an episode about youth, so for this week's theme, we're flipping the script and focusing on age. We looked into the effects of aging on farms and in kitchens and how that affects society at large. We also have news about a food that turns out to be much older than we believed. But first, let me introduce you to one of Atlanta, Georgia's most iconic landmarks.
2: Yeah, wow, that's, you know, how do you articulate a legend? It's kind of hard to do.
1: Steve Palmer is the managing partner of Indigo Road Restaurant Group which recently opened up multiple concepts in Atlanta's newly renovated Hotel Claremont. It's an historic locale thanks especially to the Claremont Lounge, known far and wide as Atlanta's oldest and best strip club.
2: There are dancers that have been there 20 and 30 years. These ladies are full of spirit and personality, and uh, it is a very, very unique experience.
1: While the Claremont Lounge dates back to 1965, its basement's pedigree goes back even further. In the 1950s, it was home to the Gypsy Room, which featured touring musical acts and exotic dancers. One of those dancers was Tiny Lou.
2: Tiny Lou was a a dancer, um, an Austrian dancer, who um, fled Europe in the 50s. And if you look through the archives, there's a poster of her in kind of a uh, zebra-striped unitard, and it said, uh, Steve Tiny Luz, the woman who famously refused to dance for Hitler.
1: Steve and his team were so taken by Tiny Luz's story that they decided to name their new French brasserie in Hotel Claremont after her.
2: I think it's also just sort of poignant and fitting for where we are right now, for you know, that women are um, ever more present uh, in our society, demanding equal pay, the Me Too movement. I'm not trying to connect dots that aren't there, but she seemed like a strong woman who had morals and principles and, and refused to, um, you know, curtail to what was going on in Europe at the time. And, and uh, it just, I think it just kind of seemed to resonate with all of us.
1: The restaurant's chef, Jeb Aldrich, took his enthusiasm for Tiny Lou a step further
2: he got a tattoo on his arm before the restaurant had ever opened and before he'd ever
1: cooked anything. And while Tiny Lou's rakes in positive reviews, the spirit of the gypsy room lives on downstairs at the Claremont Lounge, the only part of the hotel that wasn't renovated. We have a
2: great relationship with him. Blondie, one of the dancers, was on the rooftop bar a couple Friday nights ago reading poetry. Um, we know their their business is, is way up. Um, uh, you know, it's a great relationship for everybody involved, for sure. We have a, a lot of respect for those ladies, and, and they've been down there doing it a long, long time. And so it's, it's really a
1: great relationship. Next time you're in Atlanta, make sure you swing by Tiny Lou's, the Claremont Lounge, or both. Learn more about the newly reopened Hotel Claremont at hotel Next, we look into aging on our farmlands. In 2012, the USDA Census of Agriculture found that over the past 3 decades, the average age of principal farm operators has risen by about 8 years, from 50 years old to 58. To learn more about this trend and how it could impact the food supply, my Meet and 3 co-host, Kat Johnson, spoke with Lisa Held, who we are proud to be welcoming as the new host of The Farm Report.
3: These numbers came out in 2014 um, from the 2012 census, and that's when we started to see a lot of headlines talking about this aging farmer issue. So basically... Older farmers of retirement age outnumbered younger farmers by a long shot. And, you know, we hear a lot about how there's a resurgence of young people getting interested in farming, but these numbers didn't really reflect that. So just a couple quick caveats, Um, these are principal operators, so younger farmers who are working for a more experienced farmer, for instance, or alongside might not be counted in those. Um, And there have been some studies since then that um, suggest the numbers might not be as concerning um, since the overall age of the workforce across industries is rising. Um, And also um, the average age of farmers has always been a little bit higher than the average age of workers across the labor force. Um, And then the biggest thing is these numbers are old. So uh, the 2017 Census of Agriculture is just wrapping up now. We won't have those more current numbers until they're released in 2019.
0: So why is this concerning to people that our farmer
3: population is aging? So, I mean, at the, the most basic level, we need people to grow food for a growing global population. I think um, also if you care about the quality of the food that's being produced, um, fewer people growing or producing that food tends to lead to bigger, consolidated, industrialized systems that are not as good for eaters or the environment. And, you know, it's, it's a big problem because it's not enough just to get young people interested in farming. We have to make it easier for them to actually do it. In 2017, actually, the National Young Farmer Coalition did their annual survey of farmers under 40, and they found that the number one challenge cited was land access. So the question is just really how do we facilitate the transfer of farmland from aging farmers to younger farmers in a way that sets these young farmers up for long-term success.
0: So what else can be done to help address the issue and to hopefully get our population of farmers back down to a lower
3: age group? I think groups like the National Young Farmers Coalition are working on a lot of programs to make it easier for younger farmers to get set up and succeed, to kind of take over from this aging generation. But I think um, at the government level, there's a lot happening that could hopefully uh, address this issue. So in New York, for instance, the legislature just passed the Working Farm Protection Act, um, and it'll make... Working farm easements permanently eligible for state funding that's going to help facilitate the transfer of farmland from aging farmers to younger farmers. Thanks to Lisa Held.
1: You can hear her on the farm report on HRN starting this September. In the meantime, read more of her work at civileats.com. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll hear a report from Jordan Werner-Berry about a huge shakeup to the so-called paleo diet. This episode
0: is presented by Naoki, a Japanese restaurant located in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. Naoki is owned by and named for Japanese restaurateur Naoki Takahashi, and the chef is Jiro Aida, formerly of Salt and Charcoal in Brooklyn. Learn more at naoki that's NaokiNYC.com, that's N-A-O-K-I-N-Y-C dot This episode is also presented by Food Future Co., a scale-up accelerator for growing startups that are providing unique products and solutions across our food system. Focus areas include consumer products, local food, plant-based food, sustainable seafood, ag tech, food tech, and food waste. Learn more at foodfuture.co. That's foodfuture.co.
1: Welcome back to Meat and 3. Our next age-related story was Baked Up by Jordan Werner-Berry, producer of Modernist Breadcrumbs, our special series taking a new look at one of the oldest staples of the human diet, bread. Is bread paleo now? A recent archaeological finding
4: might have CrossFitters everywhere reevaluating their diets. Archaeologists from the University of Copenhagen, led by Amaya Aranz-Otegu, have discovered the burnt remains of a bread baked 14,400 years ago. Besides being very stale, these remains are significant because they are the oldest direct evidence of bread moving it from the Neolithic period to the Upper Paleolithic era. More than that, this is the first clear sign that bread production preceded settled agriculture by 4,000 years. The study, which was published July 16th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, analyzed fragments of charred food remains in northeastern Jordan's Black Desert. 24 bread-like discoveries were found in fireplaces in a hunter-gatherer site. The remains were evaluated using a scanning electron microscope, which has a high enough resolution to study fine structures embedded within the charred materials. Archaeologists and breadheads everywhere are excited because this new method could be used to reanalyze older archaeological collections, meaning that we might find even earlier examples of bread production. So what does 14,400-year-old bread look like? Tobias Richter, co-author of the study, noted that these were likely flatbreads, made from a fine flour of wild cereals and club rush tubers. The mixture of ingredients shows a sophistication that doesn't follow the normal berries and twigs narrative of hunter-gatherer cuisine. The amount of effort it would have taken to make suggests that it was a celebratory food made to impress guests. And while they may have been a lot of work, flatbreads would have been easily transportable for hunter-gatherers, and researchers see them as a logical bridge between nomadic and settled lifestyles. Nathan Miervold and Francisco Magoya, co-authors of the James Beard Award-winning 2642-page Modernist Bread, and experts on our series Modernist Bread Crumbs, agree that the earliest breads were almost surely flatbreads. Fluffy, yeast-raised breads need ovens that contain heat, and these remains were found in open fireplaces. Ever the experimenters, the Modernist bread team made a full approximation of the first bread, although the bread they based it on was even older than the recent findings. In a 2009 discovery in Mozambique, University of Calgary archaeologists found 100,000-year-old stone tools covered in ground sorghum residue. When the team whipped up their approximation, they poured a coarsely ground sorghum batter onto a flat surface mimicking a heated rock. The result had an open-hold texture, which looked a whole lot like modern Ethiopian flatbread in Jira. While the evidence of bread that far back is still incomplete, it certainly wouldn't surprise the modernist bread team if reevaluating old findings were to show that the first bread was fully cemented in the middle of the Stone Age. If that's true, bread could have been a driving force for the rise of agriculture rather than a product of it. Richter, the co-author of the University of Copenhagen study, was quoted saying, I think it's quite important to recognize that bread is such a hugely important staple in the world today, that it can now be shown to have started a lot earlier than previously thought is quite intriguing, I think, and may help to explain the huge variety of different types of breads that have evolved in different cultures around the world over the millennia.
1: Thanks to Jordan Werner Berry for that report. If you want to dive deeper into the topic of bread, check out the Modernist Breadcrumbs archive at heritageradionetworkorg bread. For our final story this week, we turn to HRN's membership coordinator, Hannah Forden. She looked into an inevitability of the chef profession:
5: retirement. What happens when it's time for a chef to retire? In other career paths, you can count on your employer to help you plan ahead. But how does it work in the restaurant industry? To help me explore this question, I turn to someone who has interviewed more chefs than just about anyone else I know.
6: My name is Andrew Friedman. I write about chefs and I host the Heritage Radio Network podcast, Andrew Talks to Chefs.
5: Andrew's most recent book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, focuses on American chefs from the 1970s and 80s who changed the way cooking professionally was perceived.
6: They made it cool. The chef profession became much more alluring, much more attractive, much more acceptable to the general public. And with the fame attention, interest, and potential fortune that came with becoming a chef, the profession changed. It became something that was no longer looked at as necessarily just kind of a labor of love and something that you would make no money at and, and, and kind of toil in, in anonymity, but rather that you would potentially become a household name.
5: With the newfound respect for the profession came the possibility of achieving fame and fortune.
6: I think a lot of people, and this is typical of many young people in many professions, assume that they are going to be celebrities. And with that will become so much money and security that they don't need to plan for retirement.
5: A claim alone isn't always the key to long-term financial stability.
6: And then there are chefs who, once upon a time, were famous, who clearly were not living a, let's say, luxurious life in their older years, either because they didn't plan for it or they thought it would last forever, the ability to be in a kitchen, to be on the line, to be in the public eye.
5: Much like being a professional athlete, working in a kitchen is adrenaline-fueled hard work that does a number on your body.
6: You're lifting huge rondos full of liquids or solids and, and hoisting things up over your shoulder and, and, and using your dominant arm to cut things all day and pull things in and out of an oven all night. Common injuries, knees, back, your dominant shoulder. These things are very common.
5: Aging chefs with aging joints are faced with the choice of whether or not to leave the kitchen.
6: The question of planning for... Retirement or old age as a cook, that it's almost one that doesn't exist bizarrely until it's too late. It's not something that is brought up in cooking schools, as far as I know and the people I've spoken to. Standalone restaurants do not offer 401k plans or profit sharing plans. They don't. You may find something like that in a hotel chain or in a large restaurant group or in a company for which you might do research and development but for a lot of chefs those are not satisfying careers they they did not get in the business to do that they got in the business to create their own dishes and to enjoy the adrenaline high of a service every night
5: without traditional benefits it's hard to follow your dreams and save money at the same time
6: I mean, this is really an industry that people get into out of love. Uh, that sounds corny, but it's true.
5: So what resources are available to chefs
6: and others who work in food service
5: to help them plan for the future?
6: Ironically, there are not financial services companies or financial advisors who specialize in chefs. I had this conversation once with a chef friend of mine, and they cracked up and said, yeah, because they wouldn't make any money. Should the responsibility
5: of assisting with financial planning fall on restaurant owners or be solely an individual's responsibility? Some restaurateurs are breaking the mold by building a network of support for their employees. Take Katie Button. Katie is a James Beard Award-nominated chef and co-owner of Heirloom Hospitality Group in Asheville, North Carolina. HRN spoke with her earlier this year at Charleston Wine & Food.
7: Everything that I do now is thinking about how I can create an environment and a restaurant that supports the people who work there and because I want them to work there longer. I want them to feel like they have a life and they can have a family and they can, you know live a great life, and um, feel comfortable, you know, in their financial situation.
5: Heirloom Hospitality Group offers benefits like low-cost health insurance and free clinic visits to employees at their restaurants, Corate and nightbell.
7: We started offering an EAP program, which is an employee assistance program where, you know, they get basically free counseling if they have, you know, issues, whether it's financial stresses or um, alcohol or other substance abuse issues or family issues that are going on or, you know, even if a family member who lives with them has an issue and they get to use this service for free to get, it's, you know, kind of short-term help, you know, five sessions and they get to address that and then they get help to find more long-term help.
5: There are also community-based organizations like The Giving Kitchen in Atlanta, which provides financial support and connection to a variety of community resources for restaurant workers facing a crisis. They act as a safety net for those working in their community's restaurant industry. While The Giving Kitchen doesn't directly help chefs plan for retirement, board chair Ryan Turner did have some words of advice.
6: As dependence on our government for retirement does not seem to be a solid bet, the need to invest becomes more and more important for restaurant workers. It doesn't necessarily take a lot of money, especially if you have time ahead of you. If you can, commit to live on a little bit less each day and employ the magic of compounding interest.
5: Chefs, like many creative professionals, may need to work a little harder to ensure comfort in their golden years. But there is a change in the wind, and more benefits are being offered in restaurants. Business owners like Katie Button and grassroots organizations like The Giving Kitchen are stepping up to make sure that the folks who feed us are well taken care of. To learn more about The Giving Kitchen, go to thegivingkitchen.org. To hear more from Katie Button, listen to episode 108 of Heritage Radio Network on tour. And snatch a copy of Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll at your favorite bookstore.
1: That's it for this week's show, and that's a wrap on our first season of Meat and 3. We'll be back with more full-length episodes in a few weeks. In the meantime, stay tuned to our feed for more short stories on the most important topics in the food world. And please stay in touch, whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey— Write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Be the first to know when we post new episodes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you love what you're hearing, please, please recommend us to your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks this week to Lisa Held and Andrew Friedman and to Eli Sussman for interviewing Katie Button in Charleston. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is David Tadashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.